Everybody gonna dance tonight Everybody gonna feel alright Everybody gonna dance around tonight Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Because I can't travel, I've been living vicariously through other art forms. Other art forms besides travel. There comes a point in adulthood where I think you start watching James Bond movies for the scenery. So (laughs) I recently watched Die Another Day, Casino Royale, and Quantum of Solace. Um, In two of those three cases, I hadn't seen them since they came out. I have, of course, seen Die Another Day many times, and I've been having such a great time watching these movies. First of all, have you seen Die Another Day lately? I saw it a few years ago. It was one of those things that somebody put on, I think it was at a birthday party, and they put it on ironically, and it turned out to be too shitty a movie to really even have on kind of as an ironic thing in the background, so... I think it may have even gotten turned off. That's interesting because I had the exact opposite reaction to it. I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I want (laughs) at least one more Bond movie like this before I die. It is so outrageously tacky, every single thing about it. But in particular, he he spends 14 months getting tortured and beaten at a North Korean prisoner of war camp. Oh, yeah. And then he comes out and he's got like a dad bod. (laughs) It's like it turns out that that all you need to recover from being in the, the North Korean prison camp is... A shave and a, you know, for him uh, skincare kit from a luxury retailer. And this was also at the very end of the long era where action stars could just have, like, very normal and not very good bodies. <laughs> like, look at any of the Batman from the 90s. Like, you know, Michael Keaton, he looks kind of like shit. Pierce Brosnan is exactly the same. And there were like one or two muscle guys like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, but they were they were outliers. They were considered weird for having muscles like that. But now it's de rigueur. But it's the last Bond movie where the villain is a guy with a big space laser who wants to use the space <laughs> laser to like destroy part of the world. And the Daniel Craig ones I saw, in both cases, the villains are just like bag men for mysterious global finance schemes. The thing is, I actually, the Daniel Craig ones are kind of the only ones I like. Like, I've never been a big Bond person, but... I mean, probably one of the normiest opinions I have right now is that I'm genuinely looking forward to, uh, what's it called? No no Time to Die. I'm so upset that the coronavirus halted that coming out. Like, all I want, all I want is to just go see a new James Bond movie and have fun. And we can't even get that. <laughs> but I, I genuinely think that they are about as good as you can get for kind of fun, well-produced and fairly non-pretentious action movies. And some of them are not even... I mean, they're I mean, they're not as retrograde in their politics as kind of classic Bond. Like, I, I haven't seen Quantum of Solace in a, in a while, but I seem to remember that he's basically saving, like, a, like a Latin American government that's hated by the U.S. State Department from, like, big oil or something like not that. Not just right? any government, but he actually saves Bolivia from a coup happening there because the left-wing government in Bolivia was going to raise the minimum wage. And so the villain in that movie is like this guy. I, I'm actually still a little vague on the plot details. My apologies. But like, he's a guy who is going to trade favors to essentially overthrow the government there. Yeah. So that's better than like all the sort of Cold War bullshit that you have uh, in the classic Bond. And then also, you know, in the 90s, 
I'll tell you what the most recent Bond movie I watched was. I didn't get through it, but I put on, I think it was Goldeneye. It was one of those things where I was scrolling through like a bunch of stuff I had on an old hard drive before bed a few months ago. And I was like, all right, like I just can't even, you know, when you don't even have the energy, it's like not just that you don't have the energy to watch a good movie. You don't have the energy to even think about watching a good movie. So you put something on that's like less than zero commitment. So I put on Goldeneye, which because my playing the N64 game preceded my ever seeing the movie is just like a sort of live action cutscene of the video game. And in that one, basically, it turns out Russia is evil again, right? Right, basically. I mean, it is like a sort of attempt to start. I mean, it's it's so funny how that one actually, I mean, we could do a whole episode on it because it kind of prefaces a lot of this current uh, liberal alarmism around Russia or the alarmism since 2016 because uh, it's all about like hacking and mm-hmm. and stuff like that um and yeah like re- you know resurrecting the red menace or whatever so so you could see why i prefer the daniel craig bonds to to shit like that well that was also the first bond where they they tried to make it let's say politically correct i'm using that that term as neutrally as possible m who's played by judy dench in it calls him a sexist misogynist dinosaur But I would say that concessions to the 90s like that are mostly optical and and not exactly deeply felt. Well, we did watch a movie this week, uh, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of uh, take stock of the state of things. By the way, I assume at some point in the future I'll stop saying this, but uh, if you are finding us via the Jacobin podcast feed that we've been on for a few weeks now, you can find every episode of the show on our Patreon, uh, which is just Michael and us. We post bonus content and also two extra full episodes per month there. So check it out if you enjoy uh, these free episodes. Anyways, I suppose it's become a bit of a segment now to just talk about the state of the election. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like every podcast in existence, at least every political podcast, uh, is kind of drowning with this stuff. But I have to say, I've really moved into a let's just get this over with kind of (laughs) of state of mind. I haven't really suffered from the same Trump era fatigue that I think some people have because, uh, you know, the, the thing that I think is so defining in the Trump era among so many people, and not exclusively, but I think particularly older people, is just this kind of all-consuming obsession with the personality and public statements of Donald Trump. And I've, you know, I've never had this. All the Russiagate stuff, that always seemed so completely outlandish to me. I could never get worked up over... You know, these stories of, you know, uh, Donald Trump Jr. met Vladimir Komotosev in Minsk or, you know, whatever. I could I could never I could never get into that stuff. I almost never hear Donald Trump talk. I'm able to, like, filter my consumption of politics to the point where I don't hear his voice anymore because, you know, nothing he ever says will surprise me. And yet there are certain people on my Twitter feed who just like every new outrage or quote tweeting it being like, see, see, see. And I just don't know where they get the energy for it. Well, I do think his affect is really, really offensive to, I don't know, a particular sensibility that I guess is prevalent in in the culture. That's the best kind of, mm-hmm. albeit somewhat vague, explanation I can come up with. But I, I, I agree, I've never been able to figure out how people summon that energy. And so when I say I have Trump-era fatigue... 
I'm really talking about a kind of meta fatigue. Like I'm fatigued with that stuff. I'm fatigued with Mm -hmm. the extent to which Donald Trump makes everything about him. Uh, You can't discuss or think about any issue or write about any issue without including hackneyed beginning of a sentence like since the beginning of the Trump era or, you know, something like that. And so I would just really like to know, uh, is the next thing, the next moment we're going to be facing after November, one of an increasingly menacing uh, reelected Republican administration that, you know, I mean, God knows what happens uh, after that. Or is it going to be one of a, you know, probably hapless, probably quickly unpopular Biden administration that rapidly squanders the goodwill that it will earn if it... uh, if, you know, if Biden's successful in, in defeating Donald Trump, I don't feel good about the state of the election. I mean, I've been following Biden's campaign pretty closely and writing about it a lot. You know, I'm not a superstitious person, but I don't know what the alternative to superstition really is uh, at this point when everything that's happened since not even since 2016, but I mean, really since 2015, you know, since Donald Trump came down that escalator, everything has just primed you for the most chaos outcome to become reality. So it's hard to look at, you know, the Biden campaign, you know, with each passing week, just walking in the footprints uh, uh, that the Hillary campaign had trodden, making all of the same mistakes, basically running a campaign that is in, I think, in, in many really crucial ways, a repeat of the one that the Democrats ran last time. I can't remember if we talked about them or not, but uh, these law and order ads, or I guess it's just one ad that the Biden campaign put $45 million behind. I mean, it looks like something that you, you could imagine Mitt Romney running it or something like in 2012. Mm-hmm. It's only, I guess, real concession. I mean, it's, it's basically a straight law and order ad. It's pretty reactionary stuff. And I guess the only concession it, it really makes to what's supposed to be the liberal take on all this is that it sort of blames Donald Trump, uh, you know, for for the violence, and it kind of deliberately conflates the torch marchers in Charlottesville. There's some footage of them with looting and chaos and disorder and stuff. But basically, it's a reactionary law and order pitch aimed at suburbanites. And it's just hard to think of anything more out of touch with with the moment, uh, you know, given the, the scale of these historic protests, among other things. Yeah, and forgive me if we talked about this already, but, you know, I found polling, there's polling from YouGov that found that issues of crime are actually nowhere near the top of mind for for most American voters. Uh, In the poll, there were 10 issue areas cited, and only 5% of those polled said that crime was their most important issue. So, you know, Donald Trump wants the election to be about looting and disorder and things like that. And by running these ads, it seems like uh, the Biden campaign is kind of doing doing the work of putting that uh, in people's minds, even when it wasn't there already. So I, I don't have a I don't have a good feeling about about any of this. I assume that most of the, you know, actual problem issues that were cited in that poll are issues that the Democratic Party can't really address because they're issues that would require some promise of action. If people are worried about health care, the Democrats can't really or won't really offer anything about health care. And I think the strategy was probably all along to tie the looting and the protests to Donald Trump. But the Republicans have kind of outfoxed the Democrats. They've somehow figured out a way to link those protests to the Democrats by saying, look at this radical left. Do you want more of this? Well, you'll get it under Biden. And so now uh, n- now what I guess the Dems thought was going to be an offensive strategy has become a defensive one. Yeah, I mean, that's my sense of it. I um, mean, you know, just on the Biden campaign, 
There was a really interesting piece in the Washington Post. Uh, I guess it was, I think the reporter's name is Annie Linsky. And it follows, you know, the template of, I mean, there's a number of pieces that have been in this vein about, you know, the battle that looms, kind of intra-democratic battle that looms if uh, Biden wins um, because of all these completely contradictory things that he's saying. And I thought this was a very useful piece because it, it laid out how vague but ultimately duplicitous the democratic campaign uh, narrative really is so i mean there's a number of things that i've explored in recent pieces stuff like the democrats sort of vaguely aligning themselves with blm while also striking a you know what's basically a sort of pro-cop law and order pose during these protests you know the article has lots of other examples biden at one point sort of inferring that there needs to be an fdr scale response to covid and to kind of the corollary economic crises but then advisors people around him also talking about how uh, biden believes in fiscal prudence, fiscal restraint, that kind of thing. The article has an incredible quote from a Wall Street banker who's, you know, these are the people who are sitting in on Biden's fundraising calls. And, you know, apparently you you sit in on these calls, you get told things like, oh, yeah, that proposal you don't like about postal banking or whatever, that that's just to keep the Warren people happy. Uh, that's, that's the line in the piece. Or uh, they told us uh, they're just trying to keep the Warren people happy. Fair enough. I remember it wasn't that long ago, all the buzz about this so-called unity task force between, uh, you know, the Biden and Sanders uh, camps and, uh, you know, how stuff like this was going to yield the most progressive democratic platform ever, blah, blah, blah. That was the rhetoric not that long ago. Before the current kind of uh, just stop stop whining and complaining kind of phase of things, the narrative throughout much of the liberal media was like, "Look, we we get it. Joe Biden's no Bernie Sanders, but you know you're getting you're getting half of what you wanted. <laughs> you know <laughs> that you know that was that was kind of story. Uh, and in this Washington Post piece, there's a there's an incredible line about you know the Biden campaign directly telling the Post that you know oh yeah those are just recommendations that you know that wasn't meant to be adopted as official policy or anything like that. So. I don't know, the brazen cynicism of all this, the supreme confidence that Biden people and senior Democratic leaders evidently have, that they can just stagger through this thing without making really even token appeals to, you know, younger voters, to their own progressive wing. I mean, the the Warren people, you know, forget even, you know, Sanders supporters. It's exactly what happened last time. Um, and so naturally, I don't I don't feel good about where it's heading. And it's hard not to be superstitious. Because I was here in America on September 11th, I just started thinking people are going to feel vulnerable. First time in a long time. What can I do? I feel like I'm running for mayor. I grew up in the shadow of World War II. You saw how they dealt with it, and it was with humor. It was with music. That's how they dealt with it. This week's movie is called The Love We Make. It's co-directed by Albert Mazels, the legendary documentary filmmaker whose credits include Grey Garden, Skimmy Shelter, Salesman, and other fine films. Uh, one of his early credits was The Beatles' The First U.S. Visit. He was there on the ground when The Beatles landed in New York with his camera. And uh, in the year 2001, mere days after the 9-11 attacks, he reunited with Paul McCartney, and followed Sir Paul around for a week in his life, 
during the preparations for and execution of the concert for New York City. I'm proud to say that I saw the concert for New York City when it aired. I still remember (laughs) it to this day. It was a huge event. It was this great live fundraiser for, I guess, the New York City Fire Department and the New York City Police Department, the first responders. Paul McCartney was the big organizing force, um, as was Harvey Weinstein. Can't forget that. And the lineup is a who's who of names from both men's Rolodexes. In this documentary, we see appearances by Eric Clapton, David Bowie, Billy Crystal, James Taylor, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, for God's sake. That, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And these are just a few of the celebrities who wander through the magical mystery tour that Sir Paul takes across New York throughout this film. I love this movie. Uh, I don't <laughs> think you love it quite as much. Uh, I love it because I think it's an unvarnished depiction of what it is like to be the most famous man in the world. <laughs> well, Will has been kind of leaning on me to do this one for a long time. And I I've, I guess my main reservation about it was my usual reservation about anything that is as, I guess, resoundingly kitsch as a Paul McCartney 9-11 concert, which is what are we going to have to say about this that is interesting or, or substantive? And I have to say, I mean, usually that anxiety, that reservation isn't borne out when we actually watch these things. And sure enough here, I can't say I liked this movie. In fact, for reasons we'll get to in a minute, I found parts of it viscerally excruciating, very, very difficult to watch. But I do think uh, the film captures something about a a very real moment that followed in the kind of immediate weeks after 9-11. I think every crisis, and we saw this recently with uh, COVID, every crisis or kind of just dramatic, unanticipated event, you know, it produces this momentary sense of cultural shock. I guess it's more applied in in an economic context uh, in, you know, Naomi Klein's famous book on this subject, but I think it applies here as well. Every every shock, it turns the cultural imagination into a kind of carte blanche. There's a period where, you know, there's a kind of generalized sense of civic and social solidarity. This is the period where, you know, either, uh, as it were, the good guys or the bad guys, it's usually the latter, can kind of intervene to to shape the discourse that follows and the events that, you know, that happen next. We've kind of seen this with COVID, you know, how there was a kind of momentary sense when everyone's lives, you know, Lord and Popper alike were being disrupted by lockdowns and quarantine measures. You know, there was a, br- a sort of momentary rebirth birth of the sense of, of kind of wartime solidarity, um, which I guess is sort of still with us, although I strongly predict that six or seven months from now, you know, that's going to give way, you know, as, as it did after 2008 to this kind of rhetoric of belt tightening and austerity and the need to be uh, prudent and restrained and live within our means and all the rest of it. But anyway, you know, I think after every crisis, there's this kind of moment where the big narratives, the way people think about it, have yet to crystallize. And things feel, probably wrongly, but they feel kind of apolitical. That's my memory of the weeks immediately following 9-11. I'm not sure what yours are. I think there were narratives that were formed, provisional narratives that were formed almost immediately out of the rubble. And, you know, in retrospect, they were political narratives, but they didn't seem that way at the time. They were, you know... Osama bin Laden is the worst person since Hitler. Yeah, this is this was like the attack on Pearl Harbor was a thing I remember hearing on the playground. Uh, I think I was 12 at the time. Yeah, the brave first responders was another one. Um, I think George W. Bush was pretty much at the peak of his popularity. Rudy 
Giuliani as well. They were sort of positioned as these great unifying figures who would who would you know were, were formerly divisive, but in these moments had had really stepped up. You know, well, there's a there's a scene that, that I think really captures this. I I don't know if we've talked about it on the show before. Um, but there is a, uh, a George Carlin set that he did. Uh, I think it's gotta be, uh, I mean, people can correct me if I'm wrong, if they know the one I'm talking about, I think it's gotta be just either days or weeks after, uh, September 11th, 2001. And he basically begins with a kind of pro Bush shtick where he says something about, you know, how he suddenly has faith in our cowboy president, you know, ain't he doing a good job or something like sort of gruffly says something like that before moving on to his jokes. Um, but I, that to me really captures the... The sense of unity, I think, in retrospect, the kind of false and duplicitous sense of unity that that set in after the attacks when everyone was still in shock. I mean, my mom had bought a like a time life special issue that was just kind of images of the attacks and and their aftermath. Uh, I remember seeing advertised on city TV. So, you know, local Canadian television broadcast throughout Ontario, like a documentary that was like the Rudy Giuliani story. And it was just kind of this heroic tale of of what Giuliani was doing on 9-11 and so I was worried this film was going to kind of be irrelevant but I do think in a rather meek and and very specific way since it's it's really just a film about Paul McCartney it does kind of uh indirectly capture that moment very well there was also a general sense that somebody's got to pay for this that was something I'd forgotten that I saw reflected a lot in this movie. You see Sir Paul in the back of his limo being like, Ooh, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I've always fancied myself a pacifist, but uh, if if Hitler marched in the streets, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd fight. Or, you know, you see cops at the concert for New York being like, and uh, listen, Osama, Osama can kiss my New York ass, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Like, you see people say things like, you know, whoever did this, they messed with the wrong country, you know? You heard that all the time. Like, the invasion of Afghanistan, you know, in retrospect, it almost feels like a like a blowing off of steam. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even know it, it, to what extent that's in retrospect. I feel like that was almost kind of it was it was as good as explicitly stated at the time but i think the film nevertheless is the the images it captures and the scenes it captures you know they're still really before the war on terror narrative had really you know fully set in as the political lingua franca i looked it up and the the axis of evil speech the famous axis of evil speech that happened on january 29th 2002 that's when george bush's uh, state of the union address was because in this the enemy is defined as osama bin laden or those guys you know or or whoever did this like there's an idea that there's a definable enemy and within the next weeks or months we're going to go out there and we're going to kick their ass it's not this like all-pervading uh, yeah global terrorist evil right and and d- define it they did and and actually uh, just this week there's a report i believe out of brown university that made uh, it, its conservative estimate is that the war on terror displaced some 37 million people worldwide so that's the conservative estimate and the authors say that as many as 59 million may have uh, may have been displaced so that's apart from all the uh, all the deaths from the war on terror, all the deaths and people wounded and all of the uh, all of the destruction. So I think it was impossible to know at the time for the people experiencing this kind of momentary sense of, you know, national unity and also sort of international, you know, global solidarity or partial global solidarity with New York City and the United States. It was impossible for people to know what was coming next, but 
in watching something like this almost 20 years later, you know, it's necessary that you uh, that you project what happened next back into the scenes that uh, you're seeing in the film. And, you know, it obviously takes on a very different connotation than the one that its uh, creators meant it to have. Now, Paul McCartney, like everyone, was affected by the 9-11 attacks. He was on his way to JFK Airport when they struck and he had to turn back. I sometimes find it hard to fathom somebody as famous, somebody as legendary as Paul McCartney existing in the same world that we do. You know, it, it seems somebody like him would, would live in another reality. Um, and in a way he does, because we see him in this movie kind of being whisked from green room to green room, from dressing room to dressing room, back of limousines, talk shows. Once or twice, we see him walking on the streets of New York with a camera crew in tow. And when he's out there, it's like a George Romero zombie movie. Everybody swarms in on him. Uh, people hyperventilate at the mere sight of him. It's it's the real life version of the scene in King of Comedy where Jerry Langford is walking down the street and uh, construction workers like 30 floors above are literally like cheering down at him and giving him the thumbs up. But But real. It's an amazing thing to see because you realize that if if I met Paul McCartney, if I served Paul McCartney coffee, I would remember that moment for the rest of my life. It would be a consequential moment in my life. And somebody who has the power to do that is almost a religious figure. Like he's walking around and he's like blessing everybody he sees with an incredibly consequential moment in their life. I gotta say, I found him pretty likable. Anybody who has spent 40 years being the center of attention in every room they're in inevitably their brain is going to get destroyed to some level. But I found it admirable how hard he works throughout the movie to be nice to everybody, whether it's people on the street, whether it's former presidents. But he also is very skillful at keeping the conveyor belt moving. You know, here's James Taylor, here's Harrison Ford, here's Jim Carrey. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Steve Buscemi. The, the, the image of Steve Buscemi, uh, skipping ahead a bit, but the image of him, I don't think he says anything. He's just kind of like on the verge of welling up to like Billy Joel or something. Well, he was a volunteer firefighter. Did uh -huh. you know that? He was a volunteer I, firefighter. I, I didn't yeah. know that. I suppose it's impolitic of me to laugh in that case. But I, I thought that was such a strange image and not uh, not one I expected. When I when I rented this film for three ninety nine on on YouTube. But, you know, when McCartney is out on the street, when he when he talks to people, when he signs autographs, you know, he tries to give each of them just a little moment. Like he'll say to them, like, oh, where are you from? You know, just some, something simple like that, which is nothing to him, but means the world to the people around him. Yeah, I mean, they're meeting the, the guy who fronted for, you know, Wings and the Quarrymen. I mean, you know, the latter being, you know, the most ex exciting skiffle group to come out of Liverpool in, in years. And, you know, they didn't even know that Dance Tonight was, was coming <laughs> in a few years. Memory Almost Full was just about to dominate the charts. Who could forget Kisses from the Bottom? That was still to come, too. <laughs> I mean, in a way, he hadn't even he hadn't even hit his peak at this point. <laughs> I I have to I agree with you. I mean, I find pa Paul McCartney, I think, is uh, incredibly likable. I've already had one normie opinion today, which is the opinion on uh, the, the Daniel Craig Bond movies. I think a second one, if you'll permit me, is that uh, I like Paul McCartney. I think if people are going to start retroactively pretending that The Phantom Menace was a work of art, I think I can get, I can get away with liking Paul McCartney on this podcast. Um but, you know, it is quite admirable the way he treats himself as a kind of master of ceremonies uh, everywhere. You know, he holds court. He uses his fame to put 
everyone around him at ease in a very conscious way. He treats himself as public property. So we see him being unbelievably kind and generous with his time to people around him. And the one moment where he kind of brushes uh, someone off, at first you think he's he's kind of breaking character. And then you realize that it's because his car is being followed by paparazzi. And the reason people want the autographs is just because they're going to sell them. So, I mean, that's kind of weirdly admirable too. Paul is a member of the billionaire class, or at least he, he was. I'm not sure if he uh, still uh, still is post his divorce so obviously i think we should soak him but uh, i think there's no getting around the fact that he's a very nice man a while ago i watched an episode of a, a youtube show i think it was where paul mccartney was going around to former haunts in liverpool and because it was liverpool especially everybody was coming up to him and the kinds of things people say to him it's this intimacy but it's like a one-way intimacy because everybody knows paul mccartney the kinds of things people say to him in these like two to three second interactions are things with such gravity, like one guy comes up to him and says, you know, we played your music at my brother's funeral. And he de- he deals with it so well. Like he's very keen to entertain people and be generous to them. And he, and he clearly enjoys it. I, I showed that to my mom uh, and, and she loved it. And though that stuff like that is is ultimately pretty corny and twee, there is something endearing about it. Having said all that, I find the scenes of people interacting with him basically impossible to watch. Um, it reminded me of, I guess you haven't seen it, but there's this there's this episode of Sopranos where uh, Christopher Moltisante and Little Carmine Lupertazzi go to Los Angeles because they have some shitty movie they're doing. Some shit. It's their like horror. Uh, mob movie they're the like one with uh, daniel baldwin right? sla- the, yeah the the yeah. slasher uh mob movie that they ultimately cast uh daniel baldwin in but they're trying to get ben kingsley to be involved in it and they've hyped it up so much to everyone around them like yeah we're, we're going to we're going down to la to just you know set up a meeting with ben kingsley who's who's very interested in the project by the way you know and then you know you see them actually interacting with him when he's sitting by the pool and it's like he barely knows who they are and it's like something that his agent, you know, owes someone, you know, in the mob a, a small favor or something. So he's sort of being forced to meet with them. He's got no interest. Like, I think it's Lauren Bacall, like, walks by and he's just so, he's just so happy to have an excuse to get away from these two extremely pushy Italian men who keeps having to push off. And he keeps saying stuff like, uh, well, of course, like anything, it's script dependent. Uh, you know, <laughs> I find that episode, even though it's a good one almost unwatchable uh it's so awkward and i and i and i found this movie awkward in exactly the same way how about a tip of yours made yeah. many years ago yeah it's called let it be yeah man i yeah i don't know if you ever got it somebody took it from my house well it wasn't me well anyway i you i'm not looking to be a magician uh, i am looking to you know i would like to get my story yeah so, you could uh, look to you man no no, no come on okay. you, do what you have to probably uh get uh I've seen this movie compared to The Office and Extras a lot because <laughs> adding to the awkwardness is the fact that Sir Paul really is living in a different world than all the rest of us. He, you know, he, he is so famous that even most of the famous people he's interacting with are like intimidated by him it makes you realize like he talks to harrison ford in this movie and it's as if harrison ford is coming to pay homage 
Harrison Ford as an audience with the Pope and you think, well, you know, Harrison Ford, like this guy was in Star Wars. Ha- Harrison Ford is like is like the lord of a minor fief who's traveled to Versailles to pay homage to the Sun King. That's what it's and like. What is Paul McCartney's legacy? What what does his fame rest on? It rests on 30 or 40 songs. But those songs, they cut so deep and they they mean so much and they songs i guess are just you know they're 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 a more powerful art form than anything else uh because they they can burn right through your soul and you know it doesn't matter that harrison ford was in star wars you know it's not the same as having written hey jude watching this i realized that the very quality that makes paul mccartney or made him such a brilliant songwriter you know is this kind of broadness and this public generosity he's somebody who's whose songwriting style you know is deliberately anti-esoteric you know everywhere uh, everywhere he goes even in kind of his you know a lot of his most famous works he's drawing on in a mostly you know non-ironic way on you know music that his parents listen to dance hall you know music that his parents listen to in in britain in fact he in the film he even alludes to that songs like uh your mother should know the whole kind of aesthetic of of sergeant pepper uh, is really all around that. Songs like uh, Honey Pie from the White Album, if you remember that one. There's a, a broadness to them. I mean, but because he's such a gifted musician, there's also, you know, an elegance to them. Songs like Blackbird and Yesterday and Let It Be, these songs that at this point are less songs than they are cultural institutions. It's their broadness, I think, that kind of makes them so effective. And it's also this quality that undergirds all of Paul McCartney's worst efforts, which I guess you can't say he had the worst post-Beatles solo career of any of them, but he's it's certainly been a, a very uneven one, and that's putting it generously. I mean... Live and Let Die is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, Band on the Run, but like not even, you know? Uh, yeah, it definitely helped when John Lennon was there for him to try to impress, you know? <laughs> That that broadness, uh, that broad quality is the reason why, you know, in the sort of, I don't know, was it the mid 2000s? It might even still be the case that you see his CDs just like at the counter in Starbucks. Uh, you can get them at like Shoppers Drug Mart. The reason that he can make great kind of mass art is the same as the reason why he can make the worst kind of pandery mass pablum. Like, um, I, I mean, I guess you alluded to it earlier, but that album, Memory Almost Full, the single from that album is the most phoned in thing ever. It's just like, everybody know, gonna <laughs> dance tonight. Yeah. Everybody it's like, it's, gonna feel all right. <laughs> it's like the cowboy. It's like a G, C and D song. It's like the cowboy chords. He must have written it in about 15 minutes or less. And you know what else was written in 15 minutes? A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we'll let the, the listeners at home judge which of them is better. But the film provides us with the most emblematic version of this in the form of what has got to be Paul McCartney's worst song. Uh, I think it's called Talking About Freedom. When I say that Paul's living in a different world than you and me, it's like you see it in the many scenes in this in this film where he's describing to people this new song that he's going to unveil at the concert for New York. He says he thinks this is going to be a Goosebumps moment. You know, he, he wrote this song basically like in a sudden stream of inspiration and and he's describing he's like i mean there's that amazing scene where he's describing it to eric clapton oh the scene with eric clapton (laughs) is one of the funniest things ever because it starts with paul mccartney like showing off to you know the guy who did the solo on while my guitar gently weeps 
you know, he's trying to show off and big up this song and talk about how it's a goosebumps moment. But as the scene kind of goes on, he, he's just getting more and more defensive and apologetic, even though Clapton basically hasn't said anything. So by the end of it, he's he's trying to sell Clapton on it by pointing out, you know, how lazy Clapton, uh, who's playing the solo, is going to get to be because the chords are just, it's just G, just... Just G and a little bit of E minor. Just G to G to G. It's a it's a five note pentatonic scale. Easy. You could do anything, anything G related. It's really funny. You could tell uh, that McCartney is actually kind of embarrassed about <laughs> about yeah. this song. But for the most part, he describes this song to people, and they just sort of smile and nod because you know it's Paul McCartney. You know, Paul McCartney comes to you, and what are you going to say? You going to say his song's bad? The the only person who can talk <laughs> back to him, it turns out is Keith Richards, which is the other thing that comes out of that scene where where McCartney's talking to Clapton because the moment he starts getting apologetic about his own song is when he's recounting how Richards kind of sneered derisively about it and expressed some reservations about it. Like, I don't know, Paul, the only two people on earth who have the kind of rock and roll cachet to say this to Paul McCartney's face are Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And it seems like you know, both of them kind of did. But, you know, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, are they the closing act at this show? No, they're not. <laughs> so I go in and I'm talking to Mick and I'm saying, well, I've got this number, Mick. Well, of course, I feel like I'm fucking auditioning yeah. for Mick. Yeah. I'm going, um, it goes like this. And I go, oh, no. It goes Mick and he goes, well, I don't know, Paul. You know, I'm not sure. Like, you know, I wonder about, you know. Pete says, well, I'm not sure you want to work. I I am going to. We've we've worked it out. Yeah, I'm going to do it. But uh, Pete says, you're brave, man. He said, workshopping a number in front of 100 million people. (laughs) Now, it'll work great. It's uh, because it's it's just for this event. And it's just um, just like, this is my right. Right given by God. It's just very about this, you know, yeah, to yeah. live a free life, to live in freedom. We're talking about freedom. Freedom. So you got something going on. So, well, so I've got. By the way, Bill Clinton makes an appearance in this film. And I like this because you hear him say the same joke twice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a lot of the scenes kind of towards the end of the movie happen in. Uh, I guess the green room behind the stage where just a bunch of celebrities and Sir Paul are hanging out. It looks like cinema verite. It looked, the film looks like it was shot by John Castavetes or something. Well, it was um, shot by Albert Mazels. I mean, he's <laughs> no slouch. <laughs> but so, you know, there's a few of the interactions Paul has with uh, celebrities where it seems like there's some genuine intimacy. Like there's something between him and James Taylor. Like when they share war stories from the sixties or whatever, like, you know, Taylor kind of looks up to him because it seems like Paul is a reason that he got signed, uh, you know, signed at the Apple label, which his career took off after that. You know, they have, they have a certain bond that seems genuine, but yeah, the scene with Bill Clinton where, you know, Clinton enters the room appropriately flanked by fellow flight log entrant Harvey Weinstein looking even greasier than usual somehow. The interaction he has with Paul McCartney is incredible because these aren't like people interacting. It's like they're they're institutions. They're politicians, you know? Yeah, they. I mean, yeah, basically. Paul McCartney I, really is a politician throughout this movie. He interacts with people, with strangers, with even with acquaintances and intimates like a politician does. Like it's so, It's so funny because that quality in an entertainer is actually often what makes a really valuable and sometimes a very special entertainer. That quality when it's manifest in a politician like Bill Clinton is the exact opposite. Guys like Bill Clinton or or Barack Obama, you know, when they were kind of at their peaks were just these like very vague cultural ciphers. 
they were these kind of ideological universalists. I can't remember who coined that phrase. I think it was uh, coined about Obama originally. But that kind of quality, which, you know, in, I don't know, guys like Paul McCartney or, I don't know, maybe Paul Simon often, you know, makes a good entertainer is often what makes the most insidious kinds of politicians. And yeah, Bill Clinton is such a phony in this uh, in this sequence where he's talking about how he and James Taylor have been friends forever and he's got some memory about one time they ran into each other on a boat that Taylor was working on or something. And it's just Bill Clinton's head is just full of like this arsenal of anecdotes that he can deploy for every situation like this. And, you know, this is the log entry that he had for this particular, uh, you know, this particular scenario. It's uh, it's so fake. You know, you can say what you will about the 60s generation, but we sure held on. Yeah, it's like, how many times has he spun that yarn? (laughs) A perfect Clintonism associating himself cryptically with the 1960s, a decade that he really has nothing to do with in terms of how people remember it, apart from the fact that he was physically there. Like, (laughs) Bill Clinton is of the 1960s in the same sense that Joe Biden came out of the civil rights movement, (laughs) you know? You know, so it's got that, which is a perfect Clintonism. And I don't know, just the kind of phony aw-shucks nature and the sort of the faux self-deprecation of it. God, how did people ever like Bill Clinton so much? Anyway, unfortunately, we don't get to see it in the film, but I guess Adam Sandler got up and in character. I mean, you watched at the time, so you tell me, but he got up in character and... As opera man, yes. Yeah, did the Adam Sandler voice. Uh, I mean, I remember it very well because I remember there were short films by basically the Harvey Weinstein directors of the time. Spike Lee. Spike right. Lee, Woody Allen, uh, right. Kevin Smith had a short film. I mean... Three three directors of, of equal stature. <laughs> when When you look at the list of performers, it's interesting because it's a mix of showbiz legends like james taylor and the rolling stones and also people who were briefly popular at the time like chris Catan from saturday night live <laughs> he introduces somebody or like i see the name of billy crystal on the list and i think you know in some ways entertainment may be worse than it was 20 years ago but in other ways it's better because billy crystal is no longer forced down all of our throats as this like you know median funny man we don't have time to do a deep dive into billy crystal but i'd love to hear a will sloan polemic probably it's probably similar to the line you take on tom hanks this is an anti-tom hanks podcast by the way folks if uh, if you're a new listener in fact in what I think is still our only one-star rating on the uh, Apple Podcast app, somebody uh, says that they were a longtime listener. Maybe they didn't give us one star, but they, they gave the show a negative review. They very somberly took umbrage with Will's suggestion that Tom Hanks has uh, contributed to the gentrification of the American mind. Well, I think Billy Crystal is the poor man's Tom Hanks. And you don't like uh, Tom Hanks to begin with, so that's saying something. But so there are plenty of entertainers we don't see in the film. I think there are a few other ones that are worth uh, noting. The Who uh, performance seems like it kind of got the crowd going more than anything else. The symbolism of the uh, UK and US flags that forms their backdrop, you know, obviously would have been lost on people at the time. It's just sort of meant to be an apolitical celebration of the special relationship insofar as something like that can be apolitical. But I, I just immediately thought about the Iraq war and all the kind of specific jingoism around that that George Bush and Tony Blair drummed up uh, when when I saw that image. Not that, you know, Pete Townsend and John Entwistle and Robert Daltrey are, are complicit in that, but that's uh, that's what the image kind of says to me. Not seen in the film also is that both Susan Sarandon and Richard Gere were actually booed during this concert. Susan Sarandon got booed for 
plugging a guy that was running for mayor of New York called Mark Green, who I believe came out of Ralph Nader's outfit. Which is so funny uh, that I guess, you know, this particularly weird pathology some people have around the figure of Susan Sarandon both dates from 2001, but also can ultimately be linked back to a guy named Green, who uh, is associated with Ralph Nader. That's very funny to me. Uh, Richard Gere also was booed uh, for saying something about the need for nonviolent tolerance, or at least that's uh, that's what it says on the Wikipedia entry for the concert. So despite the fact that officially all this is kind of apolitical, you can see that a lot of the more insidious and ultimately murderous and destructive narratives of sort of the post 9-11 era and the war on terror, they're already beginning to set in. And this spectacle engineered by Paul McCartney, as well-intentioned as it is, ominously presaged a lot of what was to come. I couldn't believe the Who were out there. I know. And Ringo Starr. It's all those tough old guys. Yeah, Ringo Starr. You know, that's what I said. I did all the TV interviews. Yeah. They asked me, and first I did all the stuff I was supposed to do, and then I said, I just want to point out one thing. A phenomenal number of these people, the best musicians in the last 40 years, are about my age. I said, now they can say whatever they want to about the 60s generation. We did a good job of hanging around. (laughs) We were talking about Bill Clinton earlier, and I'm not sure if I've shared this on the podcast before, but I saw Bill Clinton speak in Toronto once. It was in the year 2009. It was at the Canadian National Exhibition. Bill Clinton's stock was pretty high at the time. What's the field there called? BMO Um, Field? Yeah, BMO Field. He filled that thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people there to see him talk. And his speech was called something like... Well, it's always like renewing uh, renewing American greatness or or something. Yes, one of those. (laughs) And he he had just come up from Ted Kennedy's funeral that morning. And he he gave this talk, which I have completely forgotten, except for he began it by saying, you know, I I love being here. I love being at fairs. You know, I just love country fairs or fairgrounds. Why, this reminds me of a time when I was governor of Arkansas. And, you know, he had an anecdote for that. And at some point in his speech, he said something like, you know, I respect both Toronto and the Canadian National Exhibition for being at the forefront of innovation. Why, did you know that the Canadian National Exhibition was the first fair to have electric lights? So oh my God. somebody had briefed him on that, and he uh, smoothly uh, oh God. integrated it into the speech. And Canadians love to be pandered to by, by oh, Americans, yeah. but especially by American liberals. So I bet people ate just ate that right up. I have also seen Bill Clinton speak, I think it was in 2006, and... It was, I mean, not quite mandatory, but it was an event in Hamilton, Ontario, so a smaller venue in downtown Hamilton. I think Bob Ray, the former premier of Ontario, who by that point was a a card-carrying liberal, I think he was the opening act. And I think the event was called something like Champions of Youth. So I, I remember Clinton's opener, you know, he gave... Just a typical, like, meandering Bill Clinton speech about nothing in particular, um, which I guess was still the talent he had, you know, circa 2006. But his opener was, uh, you know, uh, I I was excited to do this speech, uh, first of all, because uh, I I never turned down an opportunity to come to Canada. And just everybody, there was like, you know, a standing ovation. Uh, Canadians love being being pandered to. Uh, That they like being pandered to by Bill Clinton is particularly embarrassing. Well, speaking of that, the last thing I'll say about the time that I saw him was during the Q&A after where he was interviewed by 
you know, some former ambassador or, you know, some... Do you remember the... Do you remember the we did a whole episode on the uh, Hillary and Bill uh, in Toronto event that it was, what, two yeah. years ago, a year and a half ago, where the, it was supposed to be the start of a tour they did, and it was so poorly attended, we realized after that we could have paid about $11 and gone to it ourselves. We uh, should have. And we, we <laughs> absolutely should have done, like, a Michael and Us Goes to See the Clintons uh, type type episode. We could have recorded the episode live at Jack Astor's, <laughs> like, you know, right after. But we, uh, yeah, that, that could have been our live at Pompeii, but uh, no, we did, we did a whole episode on that. We watched the whole thing on youtube and i think the uh the guy moderating it was like the former premier of new brunswick or something a guy who absolutely no one in canada has ever heard of outside of uh outside of new brunswick you know that kind of cheered me up in terms of uh you know the stock of uh the clintons had clearly fallen and uh the audience was very uh very switched off dur- during that event but anyway whoever was interviewing him at this canadian national exhibition event said to him, people may not know this, but you visited Toronto more than any other sitting president. He asked, what do you like about the city? And Bill, who, you know, Bill Clinton doesn't like Toronto. I mean, he maybe he likes Toronto. He likes the hotel room that he stays at, and he likes the one restaurant he goes he to. He likes the presidential suite in the, in the Royal York. <laughs> yeah, but he said, I've always admired Toronto for its spirit of innovation. Why... The first thing that you see when you land at your island airport is that windmill on the shore. And I think that really speaks to what a forward-thinking city this is. And I remember Uh. seeing that and thinking, wait, the thing you like about Toronto is the thing that you saw two hours ago when you landed? God, we Canadians really uh, do deserve Justin Trudeau, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) This is my right. Talking about 